Welcome to Almost Heretical. Today, in light of International Women's Day, we wanted to do a whole episode highlighting women. This has been a really important topic for our show through uh, the gender series we did a while back, and then more recently, the woman series, all trying to change the trajectory of how the church, how Christianity, how people of faith are relating to the topic of women and their involvement in the church, leadership in the church, all these kind of things, because for so long, they've been kind of put on the sidelines and marginalized, and we want to do our part to change that. And International Women's Day, it's, I mean, as everyone probably knows, it's kind of this up-and-coming holiday that none of us grew up with, and it's kind of becoming popular. I saw flowers being marketed for International Women's Day the other day in the store, and I was like, what? This is crazy. Um, but And one way that I've seen women celebrating International Women's Day over the last few years is, like on social media, they'll highlight um, a number of women in their lives who are important, you know, their mom, their close friends, their sisters, their daughters, and they'll just share about these women who are important. And so with International Women's Day, I was thinking about you know, who are women who are important to me? And and I couldn't help but think of a bunch of these biblical names and figures. And, and I thought, what better way to honor these women in International Women's Day than to emphasize their voices and their identities, especially ones who have been largely forgotten or misunderstood. So today, we're just going to kind of blow through a list of 16 of my favorite women who the ones who are for the most part unheard of because maybe they're not in the actual biblical text maybe they're surrounding or they're in parts of the bible that are often misunderstood or overlooked so so essentially today i want to tell some untold stories and emphasize some unheard voices so we are just gonna breeze through these i'm gonna spew all the interesting facts and things that i love about these women and you just tell me what you're thinking as we go Awesome. And we did a little bit of this in the woman series, right? You highlighted some voices. Mm -hmm. And and some some of those will resurface. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's dive into this. Where do you want to start? Who's the first forgotten woman that we want to highlight today? Well, I'm going to start with uh, characters from the Old Testament that, you know, we've probably heard of before, but I just want to highlight their significance. The first one is going to be Hagar. I've always wished that Hagar was a, a more beautiful name, so I could like name a child that at some point, but I'm just there's no way I'm going to name someone Hagar. But the reason I think that she's so remarkable, because when she is um, out in the desert and is crying out to God, um, and she's been abandoned, sent out by Abraham, and her mistress hates her, and she, she calls out to God, and God saves her. And she, in Genesis 16, verse 13, gives a name to the Lord. It's the, you are the God who sees, which in Hebrew is El Roy. And I, I don't know about you, but that's kind of an, one of the titles I heard for God in some of the like songs we might have sang growing up, or maybe on a banner in the church or something. It was El Roy, the God who sees. And the reason this is significant is because she's the only woman in the whole Bible who gives a title to God. And she's this hmm. Egyptian slave. Um, and I just... I think that's really beautiful. Also, interesting note, Hagar, as many of you know, you know her son Ishmael becomes the, the leader of uh, the Ishmaelite people who are known to be the ancestors of the Muslim people. And there's actually literature in, in Muslim um, scriptures about Hagar. Um, and she's in their literature, she's actually an Egyptian princess, not an Egyptian slave. So interesting oh, how wow. these female characters develop based on their importance. Yeah, definitely. So that's our first one. The second one, is uh, a Vashti, who <laughs> maybe isn't the subject of a lot of Bible studies, but she is the, yeah. So this is the, 
the queen in the story of Esther, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So she's, I mean, she's barely in the story. Her role in the story is the king calls for her to come and show off her beauty, whatever that means, to all the men at this feast that he's hosting. And she says no. And then she's just demoted as queen, gotten rid of, and, and then Esther, the story begins to take place and he looks for a new queen. And I just think we should portray Vashti as the hero that she is, who has some the level of self-respect to say, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do, and, and has the um, autonomy and isn't afraid of what literally the king will, will do to her. So mm. go Vashti. Yeah, because it seems like Vashti is often completely forgotten about and unnecessary to the story of Esther. Mm-hmm. You could remove that and... She's probably not in the children's version of the Bible. Right. Which, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying she should be because it's a little sketchy situation. Right. But definitely want to remember these people that we would champion today. Right. And and speaking of championing today, to anyone out there who's listening, if you're like a, a writer or a novelist or a playwright or a filmmaker, and, and if you're hearing some of these undertold or untold stories... Like we need to to develop and grow these by, and and that's going to be through um, the same process that ancient writers used, which is just reinterpretation and rewriting, retelling stories. So feel free to be to if someone stands out to you, some woman in in this episode stands out to you, go and tell her story and find a way to tell her story, or or maybe it's someone else. But and then we'll have you on the show to talk about that thing that you <laughs> yeah, made. Yeah, write the book and then we'll interview you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it. It's like Vashti. Yeah. Right? Like the untold story. Of... There might be some low budget film about that already, but. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Anyway. All right. Third one who's from the Old Testament that you may have heard of is Holda, the prophet Holda. She is mentioned in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. And she validates a, a scroll, essentially, that's found um, in, in the temple. She's a temple prophet. That's her title, which when I think about people who work in the temple, I never have pictured women in there, but she's called a temple prophet. And when they find a scroll that they are trying to determine whether it's scriptural authoritative or not, she's the one who like gives the stamp of approval essentially. So it's not only obviously giving her a pretty large level of authority, it's also the first kind of act of canon formation, which is kind of cool. Actually, I'm going to read... Hmm. Um, read a passage from this book that I've used a lot. Um, I'll just totally recommend it as a resource for this episode. It's called Women in Scripture. And it's this huge index of every single woman who has mentioned in the Bible. The first section is named women. The second section is unnamed women. Wow, that's a that's it, a really thick book right there. It's, it's a very big book. In this little entry about Hulda, it says, Hulda's story is notable in the biblical tradition in that her prophetic words of judgment are centered on a written document she authorizes what will become the core of scripture for Judaism and Christianity. Her validation of a text thus stands as the first recognizable act in the long process of canon formation. Hulda authenticates a document as being God's word, thereby affording it the sanctity required for establishing a text as authoritative or canonical. Mm. So, I mean, I guess, you know, we did a whole series talking about how men wrote the Bible, put it all together, but it turns out this woman had a pretty significant part in determining this text is has the stamp of approval and we will consider it scripture. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, at least one one aspect or one component, <laughs> one, one small part component. of scripture was influenced by a woman. 
All right, so now I want to go and look at a text that we've mentioned before, um, I think in our in the Women series. This is a significant text to me because uh, it was the focus of my master's program. It's called the Genesis Apocryphon. It was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We had no copy of it before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, but it was probably written around two to 300 BC, and it's a retelling of Genesis. So it features a lot of the same characters that we've seen before, um, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, those people, but it's retelling the stories with a lot of embellishment. So the first um, woman or, or women, this is more of a category than an actual character, is the, the women and the watchers. So this is a throwback all the way back to the beginning of Almost Heretical, again, and we've brought them up since then. But the watchers were this kind of, these creatures that were like in between heaven and earth, these sort of angelic beings um, in the very, very beginning chapters of Genesis, who had come down and they mated with human women. Th- that's the verse in Genesis. All it really says is that the the watchers came and mated with human women and bore giants. And then it like moves on. You're like, what? <laughs> and there's yeah, not like, really... This is like divine counsel, yeah, divine mm-hmm. realm, all that kind of stuff. Michael Heiser's work. Like, yeah. And then if you go back to that first series on Almost Heretical, we talk about that a bit. And what's cool is, I mean, when, when you read that in in Genesis, you get no information about though the women that they mate with at all, positive or negative. But then, of course, you end up with traditions later on that are uh, portraying these women as like temptresses who are seducing these angels down. But then it turns out that other traditions, including um, Genesis Apocryphon, although it's very fragmentary, so this is something that scholars are like piecing together, but there are traditions that portray these women as as just as victims who are essentially raped by these watchers. Right. And in those traditions, something that's really interesting is that that story is often the story of the origin of sin. Like we just, when we hear the origin of sin, we automatically think the garden, choose, you ate the wrong apple, there is sin. That's how it entered the world. But that actually wasn't the only story. And the story of the watchers was one of those origin stories for sin. And that when they mated with these women and they bore these giant children, that those giants are the ones who brought evil and chaos into the world. Which is why you see, and this is in that series, right? Like, which is why you see them later, it's always like asking the king to like take down the, the high places, like like mm, the per- mm-hmm. people that would take down the high places, right? Like the temples up in the, or the, uh, the what are they called? The monuments or whatever in the high places. And it's because, or the even the flood, like we talk about that yeah. in that first mm. series, like the flood needed to happen to wipe out these wipe out evil these, beings. Exactly. So there's just a different way to think about some of those things. It was fascinating. Right. And what I think is really significant about those two different stories, and I may have mentioned this before, is it's just the the mentality toward humanity in relationship to sin. Like in the in the garden story, the story of the fall that we're so familiar with, it's it's our fault. Like we are the ones who made the wrong choice and specifically the woman like Eve is the one who is mm-hmm. blamed whereas in the story of the watchers if that's the way that you the lens by which you view sin the the women are the victims the ones who like it's it's this the, this other outside non-earthly presence that has brought this evil into the world and and i just think how interesting it would be if you know, thousands of years of Christianity and Judaism had been more shaped by that story than by the other. Not just for women, but even for the way we view ourselves of like, I guess the the whole doctrine of original sin is kind of flipped on its head when you view it through the lens of a story where 
this is brought upon us unwillingly by people who never asked. And we might have also just assumed that some of this was supposed to be figurative, right? If it was about <laughs> giants and we'd I mean, be like, if we assume a talking snake is literal, I don't think we're going to yeah, assume that's true. giants. Maybe it wouldn't have helped much. Maybe it wouldn't have helped much. Have you ever heard someone make the argument, usually it's like if it's a pastor or a preacher or something like that, make the argument that like the reason why women women shouldn't be, or why Paul would then say like women can't teach or be leaders in the church is because they were deceived first and like because of the... They're weak. Be, they're weak. They, you know, they give in to temptation. That's why they shouldn't be yeah. leaders and stuff like that. Yeah. If we want to talk about giving into temptation, I think that the data would show that as far as leaders in the church go, whether you're not yeah. pastor or not, just like any kind of leader in a church, male or female, that the one, the, the number of... Um, Issues that we have with male leaders falling into temptation and being and succumbing to that are much higher than Although if you're arguing female. with the people who believe that about, you know, women are more easily deceived or easily weak, then they're also going to say women are the reason those leaders are falling because they're true. the tempting. Each story is about, yeah, that's true. So. Which is, that's the viral video that's going around Twitter right now, which is so frustrating. We should do a whole utterly heretical about this. Mm, I don't think I even know about that. Yeah, I played it for you. It's oh. that, I think they call him the flannel shirt pastor guy. Oh, yeah. And his story about how this woman wanted to like take him down in an, in adultery and uh, mm. and how he... Like, anyways, it's very anyways. demeaning towards women, and it's not great. Well, glad that's uh, not in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of other bad ones in there. But anyway, we that wraps up what I wanted to say about the Watchers, the women in the Watchers. Um, and the rest of the women in Genesis Apocryphon do have names, the ones that I want to mention, which is cool. The first is Batanosh. She's the mother of Noah, so um, I think... Yeah, probably not even mentioned, maybe mentioned as the wife of Lamech in, in Genesis, but not given mm. a name in Genesis. But in Genesis Apocryphon, she's called Batanosh, which means daughter of human, daughter of man, because that was important to them that she wasn't descended from the Watchers. Right. And then there's this crazy story of when Noah is born and he is glowing and he stands up and starts praising God. and And so obviously that's weird to to them and so Lamech thinks Batanosh you know s slept with one of the watchers and that's why Noah is clearly so otherworldly and so then Batanosh has this long speech where she's explaining to Lamech essentially her proof of why why this is her child so Batanosh is uh, significant because she gains a name she adds a story to the narrative of Noah um, and she has quite a bit of dialogue uh, and is pushing back against the male figure her husband, and she ends up being right. Um, so, the, and then the next figure is um, Noah's wife, who in Genesis Apocryphon is named Emzara, which means the mother of children, because again, the story for them is very much about producing human, non-mixed offspring. Um, and she I mean, she doesn't have a big role in the story, but she gains a name, which she doesn't have in Genesis. So again, just emphasizing that these women did exist. And there's something powerful, and we've talked about this in the in the women's series, there's something powerful about naming an identity because you will probably never read the story of Noah again without thinking about, oh yeah, then there was like, there's also Noah's mother and Noah's wife who are talked about in other places. Mm -hmm. And just because they're not here in the Bible doesn't mean they didn't exist. But you maybe never even noticed that they were absent until you're told 
that at some point they were present. Right. So just talking about these women, I think, is important. Yeah. Maybe we should publish a link to the Genesis Apocryphon in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of strange and weird and fragmentary, but that'd be pretty cool. Go check out the Dead Sea Scrolls. We'll post a link to it. Um, the last one is Sarah, or Sarai, wife of Abraham. And again, this is a story we've told before, but the story where Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt and she's taken by Pharaoh and then God intervenes and Pharaoh gives her back. There's two versions of it in Genesis, one with Pharaoh and one with Abimelech, but essentially the same story, which when you read it as just reading straight through Genesis, you're like, how could Abraham be this stupid to do it twice? But really those are probably just different versions of the same story that have gotten compiled. Interesting. But, so there's a retelling of it in Genesis Apocryphon, because it was a pretty problematic story for the Jews, as they're, you know, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people and this very revered figure, and then he seems to do this really stupid thing and risk his wife. So there's tons of stories um, in Jewish literature that try to kind of explain why he would do this and why he actually wasn't in the wrong, or why he was, but somehow God saved the situation. So in Genesis Apocryphon, um, Abraham is still portrayed really well. Um, he has a whole dream before they go to Egypt about basically saying, like, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, Sarah, you're going to save me. God, like, God has ordained this for you. Mm. And even so, like, he wakes Sarah up to tell her the dream. And Sarah s- still pushes back and says, no, like, I don't want to go to Egypt because this is this is what's going to happen. I'm going to, you know, be taken and taken advantage of and like, let's not go. I mean, that's my paraphrase, obviously. And then, I mean, he forces her to go anyway in the story, and she hides herself for five years, according to Genesis Apocryphon. And then the story plays out essentially as usual. But why I think it's significant to retell this story is because it emphasizes the fact that she does not have any dialogue, any, we don't have a clue of what she's thinking in the Genesis account, the one that we've grown up with. It's just, Sarah's literally just passed back and forth. She's not even put in the title of the story, like the one that the commentators put in. It's, she's she's a pawn, whereas in other Jewish literature, she's seen as a figure who had an actual voice and, and didn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, a will. Desires. Yeah. So, those are, that's, that's uh, the Genesis Apocryphon and a couple significant women from that. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
So I want to move into um, two women who come from other Second Temple period literature. So Second Temple period, again, is that period kind of between the Old and New Testament writings, often referred to as the period of silence, although it really wasn't actually silent. It's just they didn't end up in our canon. But things that are written kind of between 200 BC and 100 AD, roughly around there. Hmm. And um, one of the one of the texts that's written around that time, it's pretty interesting, is called Joseph and Asenath. So it's a, it's a narrative, I mean, essentially like someone writing a novel at that point, like this isn't considered scripture by anybody, but it's this story of Joseph going to Egypt and then Asenath, who is his wife. And if you remember, he's, he's given a wife who's, I believe, the daughter of Potiphar or something like that. He's given a wife in Egypt. And that ends up being kind of problematic for the Jews because as a very important figure they would they want Joseph to they don't want him to have married an Egyptian that's kind of like ah that's ugh, that's not good part of the story so being the retellers that they are they go the Jews go and try and find a way like how can we make this Egyptian wife as as Jewish as possible <laughs> huh. so this it's this whole story about Aseneth and it if you read it and you can look it up if you read it it's it's very um, poetic, almost medieval. Like she's this princess and it talks about like the jewels that she's wearing. And, and it's, it's much more um, narrative than a lot of the scriptures we're used to. Like it's, a, it's embellishing on, you know, her, her personality and who, her relationship to her parents. And when her father tells her that he's going to give her in marriage to Joseph, she's just so angry. And she's like, how could you do that to me? Isn't that the slave who came from Midian? And isn't he... Or didn't he sleep with, you know, the that woman? But anyway, she's she's not thrilled about it. But then when she sees him, she's she's like, oh, I'm so I so regret everything that I said, and it's like this love story basically. Hmm. And I mean, it it has definitely a religious spin, and she essentially repents of being Egyptian and is like, please God, turn me into a Jew. I mean, it's phrased differently, but and God gives her like wow. this big, you know, uh, blessing kind of. And then, so then she's considered this perfect wife for Joseph. But, I mean, it's just cool that this is a story. Like, this is a woman, a character that, like, people were reading about, children were hearing about. You know, she was probably this kind of a, almost like a Rapunzel. Like, the, if you read the story, it's very folklore and fairy tale feeling. Mm. Um, and it's just another figure that we've never really heard about. But she was actually known uh, in the ancient world. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, um, another one from Second Temple period is Miriam. Obviously, she's also just known in the Old Testament. Miriam, sister of Moses, is how we would normally think of her. She is the first woman in the Old Testament to be given the title of a prophet, which is significant. Um, so what was Huldah? Just, she, just later on, but oh, Mir- gotcha. Miriam was first. Gotcha. Because she's in Exodus. Um, and then... What's really cool about Miriam is she's actually mentioned quite a few times in Dead Sea Scrolls, which tells us that she had a tradition that was a lot bigger than what we see in the Old Testament. Like there was, uh, there were other literatures being written about her, and a lot of scholars have pieced together um, different um, editions of the texts and. And they've split apart things and tried to figure out which pieces of the Old Testament came first and which were written later and how are they edited. And in doing all of that, there's 
of scholarly consensus that Miriam might not have actually been originally Moses' sister. That kind of that attribution may have come later on, but that when the story was in its oldest form, Miriam might have been just a leader alongside Moses and Aaron, who also might not have been brothers. Oh, interesting. So when you, I mean, there's a, a, a number of stories in um, Exodus where you see Miriam being treated like an equal leader alongside Aaron and Moses. And um, it just might be that that wasn't simply because she was Moses' sister. Actually, she may have just been one of the leaders of Israel at that point. Hmm. Um, and then the last thing about Miriam that's kind of cool, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it's called, it's 4Q546, if anybody out there is really trying to look into it. It's very, very fragmentary, but it puts the word Miriam next to the Hebrew word Raz, or it's actually Aramaic, but it's the Raz Miriam, which is, Raz is, I, I did this whole project in my master's about this specific word in Aramaic, but it's like a divine revelation or like these divine mysteries. And when it's put with Miriam, it's essentially like the mystery, the divine mystery of Miriam. And it, and it is like in the context, we can conclude that there's, it, she's, it's being written that somehow she had some kind of prophetic ability. I mean, she's obviously called a prophet in the Old Testament, but there was some kind of revelation in this piece of literature that was attributed to her. And we don't know what it is because it's very fragmentary but just continues to show that she was a bigger figure in um, Second Temple period than we probably think of her as today. Yeah, I love this because these are just like the little hints of there being more there, right? Like, and then just your mind can just kind of wander. And that's what, you know, we would hope someone would do with these different forms of art that you mentioned earlier in the episode. But your mind can kind of wander and just imagine what these, who these people were. And potentially, I mean, these are just maybe some of these, like the uh, the one you mentioned um, previously about Joseph's wife, right? Like that could just be a story, right? That I, who yeah. knows if it, but he had a wife, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so just- And she was Egyptian and how did that go down? Exactly. And letting your mind kind of wander about around these things and um, and these people and just realizing they they had impact and they, they influenced things. And we can only imagine because we don't have a lot of information, but- that's what I love about these little hints that you're giving us. Oh, well, thanks. All right. Well, that kind of moves us through the Old Testament, and except for the Apocrypha. Um, so we've we've talked about these women from the Apocrypha a couple of times, Judith and Susanna. And then there's one more that I want to emphasize. But first, for anyone who hasn't heard, I'll summarize as briefly as I can these two incredibly significant women. So the Apocrypha, um, if that's not a familiar term, is a collection of texts that um, Martin Luther essentially removed from the Old Testament. Um, so now it is no longer in the Protestant Bibles. It is present in, in the Catholic Bibles. What that means is that this these texts were part of the Christian Bible without question for essentially 1,500 years and are, have still been part of the Bible for the large, oh, it's the majority, I think, of Christians to this day. So if you're a Protestant who's never read any of these texts, you're in the minority of Christians historically. Um, we all are. So these these are significant characters. Um, they've been part of Christian literature the entire time, just as much as Ruth, Esther, any of them. So the first one is Judith. And she it's a story of this incredibly independent woman who she's a widow when the story opens. She's the most beautiful woman. And that she's in this city in Israel that's suddenly surrounded by the enemy. 
Israel always has an enemy. And nobody knows what to do. And Judith says, you know, let me just take this into my own hands. And they're like, no. And she just goes for it anyway. She just literally tells all the elders of the city what she's going to do. She walks out alone to the enemy camp, goes in. They're all shocked. And, you know, of course, she's so beautiful. And she essentially seduces the the king or the, the commander of the camp. But before and then he as soon as he takes her back to his his tent before anything happens, and they're very clear about that because at that point it's becoming, you know, they, they don't want anything to be misunderstood. But before mm. anything can happen, she whips out a sword and cuts his head off, puts his head in a bag, walks back to her town, and they all celebrate the victory, hold up his head on a stick, and, and then they run away. The enemy runs away. And then my wow. favorite part of the end of the story, all of the men of the town are just infatuated with her, and they all want to marry her, and she says no to them mm. all. And lives happily ever after. Yeah. yeah. I remember this one from the woman series. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to that series, go back, check that out. Because there's a lot of stuff like that that we get to that you probably haven't heard before in that series. Yeah. So Judith is just one of my favorite women of the of the Bible now. And I, I, didn't, I don't think I felt like I could say that before because she wasn't in the Bible for me growing up. Like the in the Bible that I, you know, still have tucked away in my nightstand, she's not in there. There is no book of Judith in the Bibles that us Protestants grew up with. And but she is in the Bible. So when we start talking about our, you know, the women of the Bible, let's start including her and using her as an example of uh women who really do what needs to be done in the moment for for what they care about and aren't defined by their male relatives and counterparts. The second woman from the Apocrypha that I want to mention is Susanna, another incredibly powerful story. She is, she doesn't have her own book, but it's, she's actually an additional chapter on the book of Daniel. So Martin Luther didn't remove the entire book of Daniel, but two chapters on the end um, he felt were not original, so he removed them. So one of those chapters is about this woman named Susanna, who is essentially assaulted by elders of Israel, and she she cries out, um, for help. And then p- when people come, the elders accuse her and say that she was the one assaulting them. So that makes so much sense. And wow. and then when she's brought before the court, um, and she's going to be condemned, probably executed. And then God speaks, she cries out to God for help. And God speaks to Daniel. Daniel is then given wisdom. He splits up the two elders and interviews them individually to prove that their stories don't line up. And so then she's proven innocent. And that's the story. And I know we've talked about it in other episodes, but in in a Me Too era, we don't have any other stories in our Bible that are so clearly the woman being, first off, assaulted by the religious leaders, and then um, falsely represented by them, and then God coming to her rescue through his prophet. And if we just had one, you know, yeah. think of all the pastors that preach through the Bible all the way through, we're not going to leave any verse out, right? They'd have to preach that, and we would have heard that. And yeah, you or they'd get that. to preach that. Right. I mean, yeah, how different things could be if, if we used that story and talked about the implications of it mm-hmm. um, in our and for And for all those who want to, like unify all the different things in the Bible and come up with a biblical, even though we we are saying that's not what the Bible is. It's this collection of texts and there is no biblical view on women and biblical view mm-hmm. on women. But they would still have to try to synthesize 
stories like that mm-hmm. into their view and probably the view would be less bad. <laughs> it wouldn't be as bad as it is today, right? Yeah. So the last woman from the Apocrypha, someone we haven't mentioned before, um, she comes from the Book of Tobit. And uh, she's not, I mean, not as epic to me as as Susanna and Judith are. But her name is Anna, and she is the wife of Tobit, who's the main character. You know, if you're looking for something to do in your spare time, you can go read the Book of Tobit. It's a strange, weird story, but um, not probably not going to change your life, but it's got some interesting things. Um, so Tobit is this older Israelite man, and the one, the thing I want to bring up about Anna, his wife, <laughs> she's just kind of this interesting character. And since probably no, very few people listening to this episode have even heard of her, I just wanted to read this little passage from Tobit that yeah, do it. shows so much personality for her. So basically, Tobit uh, has problems with his eyes. I think it literally said that he went to take a nap somewhere and like sparrows pooped in his eye and it caused him like an infection. And then he eventually went blind. Like, I think that's what chapter one says. <laughs> So now we're in chapter two, and and this is first person from perspective of Tobit. He says, at that time, my wife Anna used to earn money by working in her rooms for payment, spinning wool and weaving cloth. When she delivered what she had made to those who had ordered the work, they would pay her. So this is because he's blind and can't work. So she's the breadwinner of the family, which is interesting. On the seventh day of the month, she completed a particular job of weaving and delivered it to her employers. They not only paid her the agreed-upon wages in full, but also gave her a young goat for a meal. When the goat entered my house, it began to bleat. I called to my wife and asked, Where did you get this goat? Perhaps it was stolen. Return it to its owners. We have no right to eat anything stolen. But she reassured me. It was given to me as a bonus in addition to my wages. However, I did not believe her, and I insisted that she return it to its owners. I became very angry over this. She replied, where is your almsgiving? Where are your good deeds? Everyone can now see the kind of person you really are. <laughs> the wow. context of this being the first chapter was like painting how wonderful of a man Tobit is. Yeah. And then here's his wife just being like, how dare you? <laughs> like everyone <laughs> thinks you're this great person, but this is who you, you won't even believe wow. your own wife and you're getting angry at me. I love it. So <laughs> just just bring that up just to just to add to the cast of characters in in the story of scripture. And then mm. we have this very uh, opinionated wife of Tobit who is probably tired from a long day of work while her husband sits at home. <laughs> um, and that's just the beginning of the story. Mm, so that, <laughs> that kind of wraps up the, the Old Testament side of things. And, and then we get to transition into the New Testament side of things, which... I could not be more excited about. The first one that I want to talk about is um, the woman at the well. And I think we've probably talked about this on other episodes as well. But this is a story that I wanted to, it's been told many times. So you might be wondering, like, why are we bringing this up? Um, Like, I've definitely heard many sermons about the woman at the well. But that's actually the problem that I want to address. Because in all the sermons that I ever heard growing up, I was only really told the story a certain way. And I've become aware that it likely wasn't told that way. So, so, as a refresher, this is, you know, Jesus and his disciples are outside of a Samaritan village, and the disciples go into the village. Jesus is there by the well, and the Samaritan woman comes out kind of mid-afternoon. I mean, I'm curious, you know, what you're remembering about, like, how this story was taught to you, because I don't, because for me, it was, you know, she's this shameful woman who only comes out 
by herself because she's um, she's sinful and nobody else, she doesn't want to be around anyone else. Because later on she tells Jesus that, you know, or Jesus yeah, the woman, tells her. The man that you're with now is not yeah, your husband. Yeah, kind you've of like been a, with five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. Kind of like a, <gasps> she's yeah. been found out, she's been exposed, right? Yeah. And we did this in the woman series, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and so the, the quick um, reinterpretation of this essentially, and it comes from, um, a book called The Land of Blue Burkas, if you're interested. It's a story of a, a Christian missionary who spent years in Afghanistan. And it's her story of when she told, just read read this passage to these women in Afghanistan. Their interpretation was so quickly so different from what the, the missionary had grown up with. And so that they knew that this woman was completely powerless in her situation. And that the fact that she'd been married to five men meant that she'd just been essentially passed along and the fact and now that she'd been with five men she was absolutely worthless and that's why the man that she was now with was not her husband was because he didn't even need to marry her at this point like there no one was going to marry her she was just that worthless and not not of her not of any choice of her own she's like these these afghani women knew like someone in her context isn't going around saying all right i'm done with you okay let's divorce okay done with you divorce like that's that's not how their culture worked so they knew like this woman has nothing and thinks of herself as as nothing and 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 that's why her question is immediately like how can i how can i worship god because i i can't go to the temple and it's not because she's like i'm so sinful it's just because she has been told by everyone that she's absolutely worthless and and that i mean that adds to the beauty for me of of the whole story because that's why jesus is talking to her to show her that she does have worth Mm mm-hmm so yeah. so yeah, wanted to bring her up just to emphasize a yeah, different way. Yeah, remember of her as well. I like it. And speaking of a woman who will always be remembered, we couldn't do this episode without talking about the woman who anoints Jesus, because uh, we're supposed to talk about her every time. <laughs> we're supposed right? to talk about her every time, uh, and uh, this is a far undertold story in both of our opinions. We talk about this in way uh, more in depth in the woman series, but essentially the story we're familiar with this. The woman, well, if you go with the earliest versions, which is Mark, the earliest version of the story would be in Mark, this unnamed woman comes and anoints Jesus on the head. There's no tears. There's no wiping of the feet. There's no uh, sinful woman. There's no um, weeping and apologizing and uh, whoever's forgiven. Like those, These are all later interpretations of the story. But the original story says woman comes, anoints Jesus on the head. The disciples are mad about how she's used this perfume and jesus says what she's done is a beautiful thing wherever the gospel is preached what she has done will be told in memory of her and we've we've talked about how that has not been the case right the gospel that we've told generally does not require this story and Uh, you've talked about on the women series how she starts to slowly turn into something else and then eventually kind of disappear right yeah by the end she's the story morphs into a sinful woman comes and pours ointment on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair. And that's it. And the significance of the move from the head to the feet is probably the most significant change because the anointing on the head, like this story was the, the basically, this isn't a word, but the messiahifying of Jesus. Like this is the moment in Mark where Jesus becomes the Messiah. Messiah literally means anointed one. And he has not been anointed at all. Like this is the story where he becomes anointed Mm, right. it, which is why he can be the Messiah. And that's why it's central to the gospel. And and then there's something significant about the fact that 
it's a, a woman, an unnamed woman, who is the one who understands who Jesus is and what he's doing and that he needs to be anointed. And she takes it upon herself to do it. Mm-hmm. No wonder the disciples were indignant. Right. So thank you. Wonder you. Why one, you wonder why none of them did it. <laughs> yeah. I, they had I time. Don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, we have two more women left in our New Testament-related um, breeze through. The first is Salome, which is a name that you may have heard. It's She's mentioned in Mark as being at both the crucifixion and at the tomb. So pretty significant, as mm-hmm. particularly two places the disciples were not. And what's interesting about her is that, you know, there's several women who are mentioned as following Jesus. I mean, it talks about just generic women following Jesus, but also names a few. Mary Magdalene, obviously, Mary, the mother of Joseph or something like that, and a couple others. But Salome is the only one who, that's that's the entire way she's referred to. She's not, she's not given a, a husband. She's not identified by town. Like Mary Magdalene literally means Mary of Magdala. So that's her town. Um, and then usually women are introduced by, so you know, so-and-so, wife of so-and-so, or mother of so-and-so. But she's not. She's just purely called Salome, which is interesting. And what I want to bring up about her here, this is in a New Testament, but New Testament related literature, kind of stepping outside of the New Testament, but same time frame, is she's referenced in the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic text that I find fascinating. If, if that starts to freak you out, it's okay. I'm not saying that it's somehow the inspired word of God and we've missed it all along, but I do find it incredibly interesting, largely because it is, it's a very early document like maybe as early as Mark or Matthew that are just these, you know, core documents of Christianity in the early church. And what's interesting about the Gospel of Thomas is it's not a narrative the way the other Gospels are. It doesn't start with Jesus' birth and baptism and then all the way through the Passion, Crucifixion, Resurrection. It's just a collection of his teachings. Essentially just Jesus said this, Jesus said this. Every once in a while, disciple asked this, and then Jesus said this. So it's just his teachings, which if you think about it, would probably have been the most popular way of talking about Jesus in, like, in an oral culture, immediately following Jesus' presence. They're talking about his teachings. So saying Jesus said this, Jesus said this, like, that probably would have been um, the way that they would have passed on these stories. I mean, people in oral cultures are very good at memorizing things and having devices by which to remember stories. Um, but this is just a very basic format. So that that makes me feel like it's it's pretty old. Some of the teachings are strange. Some of them I genuinely don't like. And others are exactly what we already have. I mean, it has the parable of the sower and the seed. It has, he who has ears, let him hear. It's I'm, probably somewhere like 50% of the text is found word for word in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the other 50% is just stuff we've never heard before. Um, Within this text, Salome is mentioned. It's verse 61. It's just kind of one big chunk. And she she just asks a question. So Salome said, who are you, man? And it's a little fragmentary after that. And then Jesus replies to her with an answer. And then a, a little bit after that, and it's fragmentary, so we can't tell exactly who said it, but likely it was Salome again. 
replies, I am your disciple, and Jesus responds to that. So, I mean, Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas is broken up into these kind of um, little chunks. Usually it's just Jesus, but then sometimes it's a dialogue with a person. And so in this case, it's Salome, which I think is just significant to say that this figure that we don't really talk about was pretty significant in that there's there's other literature being written where she's one of the the primary people with Jesus. Like the only people who are mentioned in the Gospel of Thomas are Jesus and his disciples and Salome and Mary Magdalene. Th- those are significant people. And so I just, I wonder like what, what's the story here? And I've never really stopped. Like if we just think about, you know, embellishing these people in our minds, kind of like you were saying earlier, like Salome was a, a real person, this woman who was probably with Jesus just as much as the other disciples. I mean, and a bit more considering she was also at the crucifixion and at the tomb. And, and she's just kind of fallen to the wayside. Like how much do we talk about Peter, James, John, and, you know, Matthew and Thomas and all of these disciples, but do we really talk about someone like Salome? Hmm. So another woman. And the last but not least, and if you've been listening to the show long, you know this is probably one of my favorite women in the whole Bible, is uh, Mary Magdalene. And she's obviously mentioned in that she's not unknown, but if you know the story of Mary Magdalene at all, you know that she's been wildly misunderstood for most of Christian history. She's um, been attributed with this story of being a prostitute because she's often associated with the story of the the sinful woman who comes in and anoints Jesus on the feet. That story doesn't actually name Mary Magdalene. It's it's this um, association that was made in, I think, the the fourth century or something by some bishop and it just stuck, but that's not actually Mary Magdalene. And so, mm. so wow. essentially 2000 years of seeing her as yeah. a prostitute when she wasn't. So that's the first part. But uh, what's really interesting to me about Mary Magdalene is how she's clearly portrayed as um, the most significant female follower of Jesus. She's at the cross at the tomb in multiple accounts, including a really elaborate version um, in John. And then she disappears for the rest of the New Testament. She's not in Acts. She's not in any of the letters of Paul. And I, I mean, I wondered why. What's interesting is that she doesn't disappear in other literature outside of our New Testament. Mm. So speaking of the Gospel of Thomas, so we were just talking about how Salome is in there. Mary Magdalene also appears there once she's just asking Jesus a question, kind of like the passage we saw with Salome. And then, actually, the very last verse of the Gospel of Thomas, verse 114, says, Simon Peter said to Jesus, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. (laughs) Dramatic, Peter. And then Jesus answers her, not, honestly, not not my favorite response. I'd like to assume that Jesus didn't actually say anything like this. Essentially says that, I'll turn her into a male, because that's better or something, so. Don't I don't like that at all. What? But, um, it, which, again, I want to emphasize that I did not come into this saying, we've found the missing words of Jesus. Like, there's, we don't have to believe that Jesus said all these things. But there were Christian traditions that did believe Jesus said these things. So, But what, what I think is interesting here, why I bring up this passage, this verse, is because it, it portrays this conflict between Simon Peter and Mary. 
um, which it's not hard to imagine if Mary Magdalene was potentially a, a leader figure and Simon Peter, I mean, if we know anything about him from reading the Gospels, he was a pretty strong-headed kind of zealot figure and there might have been some conflict there. So that's interesting, but then it gets even more so when you dig into the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is a very unknown text because we have very few copies of it and wasn't really known until quite recently in the last century. Um, But this is a text where Mary is the main focus. Scholars think it was probably written in the first or second century, so again, pretty early. Uh, Mary's, um, it, it takes place after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension is when it starts. And so Jesus is kind of giving his final instructions to the disciples and Mary. And then he ascends. And then all the disciples are like, oh, great, what do we do now? He's gone. And they turn to Mary and and they ask her, what, what did the Savior tell you that he didn't tell us? And then most of the book is her kind of relating, like, these are the things that Jesus told me. And sadly, most of that is is lost just in the fragments. But what's not lost is the very end, the very end of the book. And I've, I'm, I'm sure I've read this on the, in the woman's series, but essentially Mary finishes what she has to say and the disciples all have different things to say about it. Andrew says, I don't believe you. I don't believe that this savior actually said these things to you. A man not believing a woman. <laughs> Sorry. And then Peter or Mary weeps here. This is verse five of chapter nine says, Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart or that I am lying about the Savior? Levi then answers and says to Peter, Peter, you've always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. And that is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect human and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or law beyond what the Savior has said. And then when they heard this, they began to go forth to proclaim and to preach. It's funny. It's it's like seeing a deleted scene from a movie you're really familiar with right. or something to see hear these characters interacting like, oh, Peter, Andrew, Levi, I know these guys. Right. Um, but so this is another account, another um, early Christian story that's being written where Peter rejects Mary. And, and I mean, in this version, Levi kind of creates peace and they go forth and proclaim and to preach. But that's the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Mary Magdalene that are portraying Peter and Mary in conflict and also portraying Mary as having a, a different interpretation of what the gospel was really all about. Like she's relaying the teachings that Jesus had taught her. So we're potentially preaching the one that Peter. <laughs> that Peter yeah, we are. thought was, yeah. And then the one that Mary is like, here's a different one. And they're like, that, that can't be it. And that's the one we don't yeah. have. Ooh, yeah. That's rough. It's, is it buried somewhere in the dirt? Come on. I Someone go so dig it up. To find that. I will. I totally recommend the, film Mary Magdalene with um, Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara came out a couple of years ago. And it's based on, I mean, both the gospels and this text that I just read to you. Like this scene is at the end of the movie and it's just really powerful to consider what uh, it portrays this relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene that very well, like usually 
and this is again one of these just propaganda things that has kind of ruined Mary Magdalene in many ways is usually when they're portrayed together it's like oh she's this temptress or something and or like are they married or it just becomes this it's always become sexual when you put the woman in there because that's the only thing we can think about but um the portrayal in this film is really really cool of just that maybe she was someone that he could trust because maybe she wasn't vying for power the way that the the Mm. other men were wow so today we've talked about hagar vashti holda the women in the watchers Batanosh, Amzara, Sarai, Asenath, Miriam, Judith, Susanna, Anna, the woman at the well, the woman who anoints Jesus, Salome, and Mary Magdalene. And for this International Women's Day, women's this time of remembering women who are significant, um, I hope that we can emphasize the voices of women who have long not been heard. And we've talked about how the Bible is, you know, there's there's no way to correct the imbalance of the bible like there's a vast majority of male characters the whole thing is written by men be the same as like trying to go back and change like the history of patriarchy or something like that it's almost the same challenge right it's impossible right we can't get back what we don't have but we can we can grow it somewhat like we can we can look at the gaps that are in the bible and some of these gaps have been filled by other literature that was written around the time, stuff that we've just never heard of. And then other gaps, women who whose stories were never told, like we we do get to tell, like we can create those stories today. You know, maybe that sounds strange to, you know, we're making them up, but but it's I think it's valuable to even if we have to essentially create them out of our imagination, we're still acknowledging that these women existed and um, we don't want to forget them. Yeah. I love that. I love a whole episode devoted to remembering the things, the people that have been forgotten and overlooked and marginalized and listening to these stories and letting them inspire us to stop forgetting. And, um, you know, I just want to come back to something because you mentioned, even if we have to like kind of come up with stuff out of thin air, I mean, think about the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff we've come up with based on just a few things that Jesus said to the disciple, or Paul said. So we have no problem coming up with and imagining what these things could possibly mean and, and trying to convert them into a 21st century, right? Like, and have it speak to all the things that are happening in the world today. Like, we have no problem doing that. I mean, think about the hours that have been talked about the book of Revelation. We create a lot of things out of... An entire <laughs> series, book series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying it's completely out of thin air as like trying to create Mary's gospel would be, but it's, there's not a whole lot to go on and we don't have any problem doing that. So I think there's a lot of space to, to write these things and this art we talked about, create it. This, there's probably never been a better time than right now for, for this. And just the amount of people that are deconstructing and changing and, and open to, to hearing uh, new things, like open to hearing your art and your interpretations and your um, new things you create create in void. I want to read Mary's gospel. I want to read people writing what that could have been, what that what that may be. I think that's it's just powerful. And and so is having a whole episode where we remember these forgotten people. And um, yeah, on this International Women's Day, whenever you're listening to this, maybe you're listening to this in a, on a future International Women's <laughs> Day, but. Um, 
we always want to do that work of rediscovering and championing women in the Bible and today. Thanks for remembering and celebrating these women with us. We'll catch you next time.